0: be with you this fourth of july i am uh, cognizant of the fact that we probably have a lot more people online today than we typically do so wherever you are we're grateful you tuned in this morning and uh, are worshiping together with us we're going to continue a study that we started last week on the life of peter but before we move forward in it i just want to go back for a second i want to rehearse the purpose of the study so here's what the purpose of the study is not it is not to honor peter and yet i kind of want to honor peter peter was an amazing guy I think we as Protestants do not honor him enough, to be honest. I, I think the Catholic Church has honored him a bit too much, forgive me. But I do. Peter's incredible. I mean, when you think about the worldwide impact of Christianity, and not just spiritually, as if that wouldn't be enough, but like physically, education transformed, literacy transformed, healthcare transformed all of these issues, all of these peoples who have been oppressed, that have been liberated largely at the sacrifice of Christians who are pursuing biblical justice When you consider the impact and the shaping and the forming of the culture and the world in which we live by Christianity and at the same time you consider the fact that Peter was the preeminent apostle of Jesus at the time of the founding of this nation. Okay, you could credibly argue that he's one of the most important people who has ever lived and yet not because he was uniquely gifted or uniquely talented or he had this really amazing personality though apparently he did Not because he was incredibly bright, though he may have been. Look, he had all of these things before he met Jesus, and he was nothing more than a Galilean fisherman and never would have been anything more. We celebrate and we honor Peter because of what Jesus Christ did in him and because of what Jesus Christ did through him. So the point of the study is not to honor Peter. It's to honor Jesus and to come to Jesus with all of these stories in the life of Peter and go, Hey, you know what you did for him there? Can you do that for me? The way that you shaped him, the way that you molded him, the way that you used him, Lord, would you, would you do that for me? And not, not so that I can be one of the most significant people in history or even significant, but so that I can take my little life and I can use it to point to the one who alone is significant, infinitely more significant and important than anyone else. So with transformation in mind we return to this study and we come today to a story in which Peter goes from having great faith okay you ready to almost no faith at all in like a matter of seconds in other words if he was like a gas tank and fuel was the faith was the fuel he goes from full of faith to almost no faith at all like almost immediately We see this happen and it's like, okay, what in the world is going on? And the reason this is important to us, guys, is because that's exactly what happens to us in life. So we are full of faith for our marriage and we are full of faith for our marriage and we are believing for our marriage, all right? And then we have this argument in which every reason why this is a disaster comes up and is put on the table, is paraded before us. Here's why it's impossible. Here's why it can't work. Here's why we never should have gotten into this. Here's why, here's why, here's why. And look, here's the deal. We don't go from full to three quarters, we go from full, we look at all this stuff to almost empty. Like the little lights on, you know. That computer that calculates how many more miles you can go with how much gas you still have left in the tank, you know. It went from like 58 to 48 to 38 to I don't know. You know, you've experienced that. It's like, yep, no, I'm not going to tell you. Could be 1 mile, could be 10. All I know is you're here. We do it with our kids. We're full of faith for our kids, we're full of faith for our kids. Oh my goodness, I'm full of faith for my kids. I get a call from the school or some other parent, or I find something out, I discover something, I find something, and my mind is completely blown by this something, and it look at it all, and it seems impossible, and it's despairing. I've gone from here, not to three-quarters. I'm running on fumes. We do that in ministry. And as Ryan said, every Christian is in ministry. I mean, whether you're actually actively pursuing ministry or not, that is your calling. You should be serving in the church and outside the church. You're a missionary to your family, to your office, to your neighborhood, to this city, like all of these things. And and we take it up with passion, many of us. And we go hard after it. And we're full of faith for it until something happens or nothing happens. And we don't go from full to three quarters. We're like, oh, good grief, you know. Siri, where is the next gas station? You get the idea? Our health? Our business? So the question that I want to ask today is why? Why does that happen? Like, why is it that we start here? Like, we are full of faith. How do we go from full of faith to almost nothing and immediately? And I want Jesus to answer that through the example of Peter in a story that we're going to look at today and that we find in three different places in the New Testament. So Matthew has a version of it. We're primarily going to be there. But Mark also has a version, and he adds a few details that I'm going to add. And John also has a version, and he says a few things that Matthew doesn't say, so I'm going to add those too. But in all three of these different accounts that we find in these three different places, they all follow on the heels of one of Jesus' more famous miracles, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And as I've said in the past, it wasn't 5,000. It was just 5,000 men. But the Bible makes it clear that there were also women, that there were also children. It's like 20,000 people. And they're on the southeast shores on the side of one of the mountains of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is teaching these guys. And they're far from towns and villages. And, I mean, there's no, you know, Walmart or no, no Publix they can go to. Like, I mean, they're going to have to travel a ways to get food. And, and I'm sure that they brought food with them. But the idea is that the day is dragging on, you know, and whatever they had, they've consumed at this point. And so the disciples are starting to get a little nervous because they're thinking, okay, these people are going to get hungry. And then they're going to get angry, which means they're going to be hangry and at us. And so they're coming to Jesus and they're going, hey, you know, you need to, you need to cut this thing short, like... You've been going long enough. Like you need to send these people home so that they can get something to eat. It's going to take them two hours to walk to wherever it is that they need to go. And they don't have food. And Jesus says, well, you feed them. And they're like, what are we, Amazon? You know, are we going to drone some food in. Is that the way this is going to work? I mean, it's ridiculous. He says, well, what do you have? Very interesting question. What do you have? Well, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. There are 12 of us, not including you, Jesus. Like, that isn't even enough for us. The idea is that it's enough for him. I think we look at our challenges and we're like, it's over. And our Lord is going, what do you have? Well, "Well, listen, what I have is not enough. That's why I'm saying it's over. But put it in my hands and trust it to me by faith may not be enough for you, but it's enough for me. That's the idea. So he takes the loaves and the fish, and you know the story. He multiplies them miraculously, feeds absolutely everybody, including his 12 disciples. He has them carry 12 basketfuls left over as an object lesson for them. It's awesome. And then we have this story. It says in Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, it says immediately after this is the idea. Jesus made, it's a forceful word. He gives them one option. And it's not even an option. He's like, this is what you're going to do next. So he made his disciples do what? Walk down the hill that they've all been on, down to the Sea of Galilee where they left the boat that they no doubt arrived in, and get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So they're traveling across the Sea of Galilee, which if you don't know anything about the Sea of Galilee, the word sea is a little misleading, okay? Okay. So you're thinking that it's huge, like you're thinking Mediterranean Sea, you're thinking Persian Sea. It is a freshwater lake, that's it, and it's not all that big. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long from top to bottom. It is 8.1 miles in width at its widest point, surrounded by mountains. It's 700 feet below sea level. Why is that significant? Because actually the lower you get in the earth, the warmer it is. I know that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? You go up on the mountains, that's where the snow is. You go down low, it's hot. So what does that mean? Well, it, it means that when the cold air rushes down the mountains into this great crevasse, this rift, this gash in the earth that begins with the Sea of Galilee and goes all the way down the Jordan River Valley, down to the Dead Sea at, the, at its basin, okay, when that cool air comes down and it hits the warm air and it also is funneled through that gash, you've got quite a storm on your hands. And so it's not unusual if you're out on the Sea of Galilee to get a storm. And so I thought it might be helpful for me to show you kind of topographically what you're dealing with. you can see the Sea of Galilee. So it's 13 miles with a shaky hand from top to bottom, 8.1 miles across at its widest point. These guys are down here. That's where they're located. And so where they're going to go is they're going to go from here to over here, over by Gennesaret. But you can see the mountains, and you can even see the gash in the earth down below it. And so that gash runs all the way down, and the Jordan River flows down through it, all the way down to the Dead Sea where it empties in. And the Dead Sea is the lowest elevation anywhere on the planet. It's remarkable. If you look around, you can see Nazareth is down here. Syria is up here, Jordan is here, Lebanon is up this direction. This is the Golan Heights. This is all Israel and Palestine. This is the Carmel Mountain Range. Modern-day Haifa is right there at the tip. So we are in Mount Carmel. We're like here, and we're looking this way. This is the Valley of Megiddo. It's a beautiful and amazing place, but you can imagine being out on this sea, 700 feet below sea level, And all of a sudden, the wind comes rushing down out of the north, which is exactly what happens in this story. It comes down off of those mountains, and then it's funneled through that gash in the earth that begins with the Sea of Galilee. It collides with the warm air, and then all of a sudden, you've got a big storm on your hands. And that's exactly what happens to these guys. So what happens is Jesus is teaching. He says, look, guys, go down there. Get back in the boat that we took over here. And then row yourself from where we're at all the way across to the other side. How far is that? Ten miles? It's not a little distance. And I want you to do that while I dismiss the crowds. And so Jesus dismisses the crowds. And I want you to get a feel for how much time all of this takes. There are 20,000 people, okay? Jesus has finished his sermon. And, I mean, how many do you think want to talk to him after he's done? Oh, my goodness. He's probably got a line of 2,500 people going, hey, I got a question. Hey, can you pray for my son? Hey, what about this? And I've heard this in the past, but then you said this today. And da 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 da, 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 da. By himself, he dismisses 20,000 people. After he's done with that, he climbs the rest of the way up the mountain by himself to pray. And then after that, evening came. So now the sun has set. And he's up there on the mountain alone, but the boat that these guys are in, that he put them in, okay, by this time was a long way from the land. In fact, John tells us that they had rowed at this point about three or four miles. So, you know, I don't know, 40% of the way across, maybe. And the reason it's taking them so long is because they're being beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So practically speaking, what has Jesus done to his disciples? Let's just pause for a minute and consider who Jesus is. I mean, they haven't quite yet figured this out, but they're figuring it out. But Jesus is God. So that means that he is the creator, not just of this storm, but of every storm, not just of this kind of storm, but of every kind of storm. That's helpful. Not only is the creator of every storm, he is the controller of every storm. He is, in fact, the Lord of every storm. So Jesus has taken his disciples. He's like, guys, one option. This is it. Go down. Get in the boat. Take off. Push off from the shore. Head 10 miles toward Gennesaret. I'll meet you there. How are you going to get there, Lord? Don't worry about that. I got that covered. Practically speaking, he has knowingly and intentionally sent them out into the storm. It's not like Jesus, you know, he's up there on the mountain praying and all of a sudden the storm comes up and he thinks, oh, good grief, you know, I should have checked the weather app, you know, before I sent them out there. He is the weather app. And we're told in one of the other accounts, Mark, who says the whole time that they're out there from the place on the mountain where he's praying, he can see them, he's watching over them in the storm. And more than that, he comes to them in the storm. So it says in verse 25 that in the fourth watch of the night, which is, by the way, is sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So these guys have been out there battling the winds and waves for like 8 to 10 hours at this point in all likelihood. Jesus came to them, but now notice how. He came walking on the sea. Okay, do you know what the Egyptian hieroglyph is for the word impossible? It's feet on top of water. It's that. It's that. It's a man who walks on the sea. It's impossible. You can't do that. You have weight. You sink. So Jesus comes to them walking on the sea but he's not close enough to them for them to be able to make a visual on him. They don't know who this is. They just see a person walking on the sea. Incidentally, it's dark, it's nighttime. There's a storm, there's wind and waves and they're trying to make out, what in the heck are we looking at here? I mean, you can imagine the conversation these guys are having. What is that? It gets a little closer. It looks like a person. That's impossible. That's crazy. Am I just me or am I the only one who sees? Like they all see him, but they don't know it's him. They just know they see a person walking on the sea, and they're wondering if they've lost their minds. Jesus came to them walking on the sea, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were very naturally and understandably terrified. And they run the math on this, and they're like, what are we looking at here? And they conclude the only thing that they thought they could conclude, which is, this is a ghost. Why? Because if you're going to walk on water, you have to either be weightless or you have to be God, or, spoiler alert... You have to be someone enabled by God to do the impossible through the connection you have with God by faith. There's that. So they see him, and we're told in a different account that his intention, by the way, is to just walk by. Can you imagine that? Hey guys, you know what's that? What? Are you, hey, what? Hey guys, like what are you? Are you kidding me? His plan is walk by until they cry out in fear what attracts the lord to his people well apparently one of these things is fear he changes his plan So I walk our dog every night. We bought this dog for $150. It was a suggested mandatory donation to the rescue place that we had, so we paid the suggested mandatory donation, and she became like a therapy pet for us all the way through quarantine. Like, we love, love this animal. She's really cute. She's awesome, terrifying. If you met her, you'd be scared to death of her, to be honest. She would look like she's going to attack you through the hurricane door, and you'd be grateful that that had hurricane glass because... But if you know her, she's sweet and she's tender and she's actually a super scaredy cat. Like she is a total chicken. And so I walk the dog every night. So like three or four nights ago, I'm walking the dog and we get almost to the end of the street and we're going to go around the corner but people around the corner start shooting off fireworks which I'm typically a fan of. Like I love fireworks, I've shot off fireworks and these were pretty impressive. I mean they weren't quite fireworks show impressive but for dude in the street impressive... These people had it going on, and they were loud, and my poor dog was freaking out. Like, I said, honey, it's okay, and I touched her, and she cowered down. Couldn't get home fast enough. The next night, boom, somebody car backfired. I'm like, oh, no, and she's trying to race me home, you know? Like, last night, I took her out, and I thought, I'm going to beat the crowd. You know, it's, it's still light out, so I'm going early, two hours before I would typically go. <laughs> and, uh... Yeah, no, boom, and we were like shh, straight back to the house. She didn't even want to go. This is her favorite thing in the world. So Beth and I are sitting with this dog that we've adopted into our family that we paid $150 for on the couch, and we're like babying. Oh, honey, it's okay. You know, like I mean, I'm like genuinely concerned for the emotional welfare of this animal. How concerned is Jesus for you? I mean, first of all, what has he paid to adopt you into his family? He paid his life. He looked at you and me, and we have gone way off the rails. (laughs) We've given him no reason to love us. And yet, in the magnificence of his love, he has come. He has suffered and died, offering his innocent life in the place of every one of our guilty lives as the full payment for all of our failures. And he might claim us that he might call a son or daughter. I just, you know, I'm like, I'm thinking of this story and I'm thinking about this and I'm like fear and that's what draws him to us. Of course, it's what draws him to us. When your child is scared, what do you want to do? Take him up in your arms. Let him know that it's okay. Maybe that's the point of the whole story for you today. Like, yep, we can just pray and go. Like, that's all I needed to hear. These guys cry out in fear And Jesus stops, like he's not going to go by now. Now he's heading this way. And immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's I. And then what does he say? Do not be afraid. And then Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's actually you, then command me to come to you on the water. Now, why do you think that Peter says this? Because there are options. And I'm not sure exactly what the right option is. I mean, I have a preference. So is Peter saying, listen, we've been out here for eight to ten hours. It is tough. Like, we are rowing almost directly into the wind, lots of waves, very difficult, and frankly, I'd like to leave that operation to the rest of these guys because it looks like it's easier to walk. So command me to come out there because contained in that command is what? It's the promise that I'm not going to sink. It's the promise that I'll be able to do this, and I'll do this, and you and I can get there and, you know... and." We'll make them breakfast or something. I don't think so. Is Peter saying, all right, so Jesus, if this is actually you, because you are not close enough for us to make a visual, keep that in mind. Again, Jesus is saying, hey, guys, it's me. Why does he have to say that? Because he's not standing right next to the boat. They can't see that. Peter's going, Lord, if it's you, he can't tell yet. But is Peter saying, look, I want you to prove that it's you and here's how I want you to prove that it's you. I want you to prove that it's you by commanding me to come walk to you on the water because contained within that command is the promise that I'll be able to do that and therefore, if I'm able to do that, then it must actually be you, which would in fact be the case. But think of the cost of failure in that arrangement. I mean, I understand that Peter can swim, guys, but we are talking the boat is rolling and these guys are going to have a tough time getting him back out of the water. I get that he can swim, but he can't swim with these waves crashing over the top. In other words, he is in all likelihood going to drown. He will start to sink in a minute in this story, and he'll cry out, Lord, save me. Why? Because he can't tread water? No, because he's going to sink all the way to the bottom. Ability to swim notwithstanding. I don't think that Peter's going, yeah, I think I'm going to risk my life to prove a point. You know, like... I think what's happening is that these guys, Peter included, are out on the Sea of Galilee. They're in the Sea of Galilee on a boat, which is helpful. They're in a Sea of Galilee on a boat in a storm, and Jesus is present. Does that sound familiar? Because this isn't the only story that happens in. It's the second story this happens in. The first story, Jesus is in the boat with them and he's asleep in the stern of the boat and the storm comes up as I've already explained and it is like, it's a biggie. And so these guys are like, man, you know, we're professional fishermen and we're freaking out and Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and basically chastise him. It's like, what are you doing? How can you sleep? Do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus gets up and what does he do? Because he is God, therefore the creator, therefore the controller, therefore the Lord not just of that storm or of this storm or even of those kinds of storms, but of every storm, including ours. He speaks to the wind and the waves. He says, hush, be still. And it goes from crazy to we could go water skiing like that. I think what Peter is doing is he's remembering that. And he's remembering what Jesus did next in that first story. He turned and he looked at his disciples, including Peter. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? And now notice the language because it's different from what we'll hear in a second. He says, have you still, here's the key word, no faith? So here's what Peter doesn't do in our story He doesn't hear Jesus go, hey guys, it's okay, it's me, and then say, all right, so Lord, if it's you, could you speak to the wind and the waves and tell them to be still? Because that would be super helpful. We've been out here for eight to 10 hours. I mean, this is perilous, man. He doesn't do that. I think instead he embraces this as a moment to show Jesus that he has faith. Risk my life kind of faith. Lord, if it's you, I want to pass the test this time. So you command me to come out to you on the water, and I will believe in the promise contained in that command that I'm going to be able to do it, and I will, at the risk of my life, do it. And so Jesus, in verse 29, says, all right, come on. And so by faith in that command of Jesus, that contains that promise that he's not going to sink. What does Peter do? He got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came all the way to Jesus, which, in my opinion, was quite a distance. I think we read the story and we imagine that he walks like five feet or something. No, they can't see him. And I get it. It's night. There's a storm. But how far is he really? 30 feet? 40 feet? Might he be 50 feet away shouting at them through the wind? Again, he was just planning to walk by. Hey, see ya. Good to see ya. Peter doesn't get out of the boat and take a few steps. He gets out of the boat and he walks and he walks and he walks and he walks all the way to Jesus. It's interesting, and as he's walking closer to Jesus, what's happening visually? He's becoming more and more distinct, isn't he? I mean, you can see him now. Like, he's getting clearer and clearer. It's like a metaphor of life, you know? Like, we only have so many years in this life, and as you grow older, hopefully, as you're walking more and more and more and more closely toward Jesus, he becomes clearer and clearer and clearer and sweeter to you. And you're like, "Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to fail in the end. Well, hang on. Because even if you do, Lord, save me is enough. That's how great he is. It's remarkable. Anyway, Peter walks all the way to Jesus through the wind and the waves. And then it says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Okay, if you did your personal worship this week as Ryan called us to do, you read through this story and studied through it and looked at did that seem weird to you? That blows my mind until I start thinking about myself, honestly. But like, that's crazy. It's not like the wind was a new feature. guys have been battling the wind for eight to ten hours. You know, like, I mean, if you went to Peter and said, hey, Tell me about this story, like the walking on the water, and then, you know, you you saw the wind. and Like, how did that work, you know? He would not have said, look, it was a perfect night. It was clear. It was cool. The water was absolutely smooth. No wind at all. Jesus came. He was going to peace out, but then we saw him and freaked out, and then he said, no, no, come to me. And I said, Lord, would you command me? And he said, yes. And then I got out on the water, and it was like glass, and I just walked across it, and I made it within an arm's length of Jesus because that's how close he gets And then all of a sudden there was this big gust of wind and waves kicked up and I was like, whoa, wait a minute, what happened? And then I freaked out and I sank. No, I've been battling the wind for eight to ten hours and boats rocking like crazy. It was hard to get out. I'm walking through the waves and the wind is like, you know, blasting my face. And then for some inexplicable reason, within an arm's length of my destination, I look at the wind. And then I began to sink, it says in Peter, beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus, who's standing right there, immediately reached out his hand and he took hold of Peter, saying to him, what, have you still no faith? No, he's seen faith. This man just risked his life in faith. He got out of the boat in faith. He walked over. He did the impossible according to the Egyptians and everyone else in faith. He's walked all the way to Jesus in faith. There's been a demonstration of faith. I mean, people want to take shots at Peter. I'm like, hey, you know what? None of the other guys got out. And and point number two, like There have been two people who have walked on water, Jesus, who is God, and Peter, who is enabled by Jesus, who is God. Like, you know, take a few laps on the surface of your pool with your feet and then take a shot at Peter. It's impossible. We're called to do impossible things. We look at things and Jesus says, no, you got to do that. Like, yeah, it's not possible kind of the point, isn't it? It's not possible for you, but you're to walk in the Spirit. You're to walk by faith. The Bible keeps telling, when you blow it, Lord save me. (laughs) And he does. Peter says, Lord save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand, took hold of Peter, saying to him, not Have you still no faith, but owe you of little faith? And now Jesus is going to answer our question. And for those of you over 50, like me, you've forgotten the question, have you not? So I'm going to give it to you again. It's how do we go from full of faith, not to three quarters, but to fumes in a matter of seconds? And what happens to us is doubt. He says, why did you doubt? Because doubt is what sank you, Peter. It's what sinks me. It's what sinks you. And so what's the better question? It's Jesus' question, which is why do we doubt? And the answer, it seems to me, is that because we choose to focus on some element of our storm instead of him. Like, I've got faith for this marriage. Lord, I have faith for it. I've got faith for it. I have faith for it. All of the stuff gets drummed up and put on the table. I look at it and go, you know what? It's impossible. This is impossible. And Jesus is like, I'm aware of that. So do you want to walk on this or not? If you focus on that, you're going to sink. If you focus on me, it's different. What do you have? Let me divide and multiply. You see, he's the miracle working God. What is the power of faith? It is the power to do the impossible, or at least what for us is impossible but we do it in obedience to him. And and in the promises that obedience contain, we're full of faith for our kids. We get the call from the school or from the other parent or from whatever, and we look at all of the stuff and all of the crud, and it's hopeless. You know, we're overwhelmed with it. It's like a mountain of stuff. It's impossible for me to get over this mountain. Yes, it is. And the Lord's like, hey. Look, the idea is that as long as we focus on Jesus... We're enabled supernaturally to walk through the storms of this life, but as soon as we choose to focus on the storm, and the storm is real, like the wind was real, the waves were real, the peril was real. It's all real. But when we focus on that as opposed to him, we doubt, and the doubt sinks us. So three questions, and I'm done. What is the storm that you're in right now? Because Jesus, whatever it is, is the creator of it, He is the controller of it. He is the Lord of it. Okay, you ready? He sent you into it. He sent you into it. He watches over you while you're in it. He comes to you in it. And he offers to you his miraculous self, his presence, and his power to persevere and even to walk on top of it which brings to question number two, which is who or what are you focused on in the midst of your storm? You know, is it Jesus or is it some element of the storm because the one enables you to walk upon the waves of the storm and the other sinks you, doesn't it? And it is especially foolish. Can we just agree on this? It is especially foolish, okay, to look again at something you've already defeated by faith. Again, Peter defeats the wind and waves before he even steps out of the boat. He gets all the way to Christ And then he looks at the wind. What in the world? We do the same thing. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. Sorry. Two dog illustrations today. But it's like you gave that up and now you want it back. And we do the same thing. It's like, you know, I gave that up. I've defeated it in faith. I'm feeling down today. I think I'll wallow in this again. You know what? I haven't doubted in a while. Let's pick this back up. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's very much human nature we all do it but it is especially foolish to return to things and allow them to cause you to doubt but you've already conquered once or 101 times all right last question what does it mean for you to get out of the boat so what is your next step of faith toward jesus and maybe your next step of faith is actually the first step of faith you know, you've been watching online or you've been coming to church or your friends have been talking to you about Jesus or whatever, you're here for whatever reason and you have not taken the step toward him of gathering all of your failures and all of your issues and all of the things that you need to have healed and all of your sins and all of the stuff you've pretty sure you've piled up between you and God and given it to the one who loves you enough to give his life that those things might be paid for, forgiven for forever. And that he might embrace you as his own son or daughter. That is step number one. But beyond that, after you do that, I do think you do look at the growth track. What is the growth track? Really, it's just all of the biblically indispensable ingredients in the life of one who is growing in their relationship with this Jesus, who alone can enable us by faith to do what we cannot otherwise do, what's impossible for us. So look at the growth track because you might go, man, I, I, you know, I, I join you for worship. Okay, okay, but I am not growing and I need to go for the podcast. I, I, I am growing, but I'm not a community and I need, to, I need to find my platform for mission because I only have so much time. And honestly, in the end, that's what this life is all about. So what is the storm that you're in right now? Who or what are you focused on in the midst of it? And what is the next step? What does it mean for you now to get out of the boat? Okay, let's pray about that. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and in it we find life. God, we find people who are not unlike ourselves. As extraordinary as Peter is, he's also ordinary. And for that I am grateful. God, we can relate to ordinary. We know what it is to sink more than the walk. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and that he would give us faith to walk. Lord, take our lives, forgive our sins, reorient our hearts and our minds. Let us believe in the God for whom all things are possible. And let us learn, as Paul says, that in Christ we can do all things. For as Jesus says, apart from him we can do nothing. So let us not focus on the pile of stuff and all the reasons why this or that are impossible. The wind, the waves, particularly ones we've conquered already in the past, Lord. Let us not return to things that have caused us to doubt in the past that we've beaten. And set our minds and our hearts on you. God, let us see you, focus on you, experience you, move toward you, And in moving toward you, move over all the rest. Do this, we pray, for your glory and the good of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.